All but four of the world major religions are based upon mere philosophical propositions. The other four are based upon a person. And of the four that are based upon a person, only one claims an empty tomb for its founder. The other three of the four, based upon a person, Judaism, Buddhism, and Islam, all claim millions of followers and all agree that their founders still lie dead in the dust of the ground. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew tells us that when Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb, to Jesus' tomb on the third day, early in the morning after Jesus had died, they are met by an angel. And the angel says to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. For He has risen as He said. Come see the place where He lay. For the first time in human history, a religious leader had vindicated his truth claims by means of the ultimate evidence of deity. He had conquered death. Jesus Himself, Jesus the Son of God, had predicted that He would be killed and that He would be raised from the dead three days later. Because of Jesus' prediction, His enemies went to great lengths to make sure His predictions didn't come to pass. Now the question I thought of this week, the question we should ask, maybe, is why were Jesus' enemies so bent on making sure His prediction didn't come to pass? Why would they go to all that trouble? Jesus' enemies well knew that if Jesus rose from the dead, or even if His disciples were successful in stealing His body and making it look as if He had risen from the dead, they would never be able to keep this religious sect that Jesus founded from spreading. Now, I know I used some words there that we don't normally use in our time, but in that particular time, those words would have been used, religious sect. In my language today, I choose not to use those words, but that's the way they communicated. So what they decided to do was to make a tomb for Jesus, and they would make that tomb as secure as possible. So this, the main idea we want to walk away with today is this, if you're looking at the handout, is that the evidence for Jesus' bodily resurrection should lead us, it should lead you individually, to believe in Him as Savior and Lord. What we're going to talk about today, the evidence of Jesus' bodily resurrection should lead us, it should lead you to believe in Him as Savior and Lord. So if you're looking at your handout, I'm doing things a little bit differently today than I normally do. You see on your handout there, the truth of the empty tomb. The truth of the empty tomb. If you're OCD like me and you have a blank there, the word truth goes in there. We don't move on in my world unless we fill in the blanks. So, the truth of the empty tomb. John 20 verses 1 through 9. In John chapter 21 through 9, there's evidence that the tomb was empty. Almost. And before we talk about what the disciples found in the tomb, let's let's take a look. I want to take a look this morning at the extent to which His enemies went to make sure that the predictions of Jesus about His resurrection did not come to pass. There are four physical aspects of the tomb 
that were given special attention. If you've read through the Gospels, you're aware of these things being there, but sometimes, like we normally do, we just casually read the Bible, we get acquainted with things, and we don't look at the words and think about them. There were four physical aspects of the tomb that were given special attention. The tomb itself, the stone, the seal, and the guard. So quickly, let's talk about those four things. The tomb. If you were to back up to John chapter 19, verse 41, let me read that for you. John 19, 41. It says, Now in the place where He was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish preparation days, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. I'm not going into all the details about the Jewish day of preparation. We don't have time for that. But the fact was, when Jesus was crucified, He was laid in a new tomb that had never been used by anyone else. And here, the tomb of Jesus is described, as I said, as new. No one had ever used that tomb. And the other Gospels add the information that it had been hewn out of a solid rock. In those days, they would go to a, uh, a particular place where there was rock, and they would go into that hillside, and they would carve themselves out a, a, uh, a tomb, a burial place. And Matthew's Gospel tells us that Joseph of Arimathea owned that tomb. Now, Joseph of Arimathea was extremely wealthy. He was powerful. And because of that, you can be sure that he had the Cadillac of tombs, all right? You have the kind of money Joseph had. You picked the best place. You picked the best people to carve out your tomb. You made sure that place was secure. And no ordinary grave robber would be allowed to get into that tomb and take anything out of it. Because a lot of people took their possessions in with them, valuable things. And uh, whether Joseph, being a believer or not, did that, who knows. But the point is, this tomb had never been used. And it was, as I said, it was the Cadillac of tombs. It was the best of the best. And by the way, if you go to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah predicts that Jesus would be buried among the wealthy, and we see that take place. That's just kind of a side note there. So you have the tomb, and what kind of tomb it is, and the extent of this tomb, and how well it was put together. Then you have the stone. The stone was placed at the entrance of the tomb, was used to protect against, obviously, from what? People getting into the tomb, or animals going in and desecrating the the body. Normally in front of the opening... And you can study this, and a lot of books, and a lot of people have given their life to studying this, but in front of the opening, there was a deep depression in front of that entrance into which the stone was rolled down into that depression, and it was still high enough that it covered the opening. Now, while one man might be able to roll the stone into it, it would take several to roll that stone out of that. I'll give you an illustration, and this is not going to happen. Someone could come and take the piano, and because it's on wheels, one person could roll that piano down that aisle there, out on the porch, and they could roll it off those steps. Take it out there and set it on the pad and tell them to do the same thing coming in. You get the idea? It would be easy to roll that stone in there, but it would be very difficult for someone to roll it out. Also, all the gospel writers leave no doubt that stone in front of Jesus' tomb was unusually large, and it was extremely heavy. 
Mark in his gospel tells us that when the women came to the tomb early Sunday morning, they were talking, and here's what they were saying. This is the way I would say it. You know that big old stone is going to be there in front of that tomb, right? And that thing's going to be heavy. And here's us three women. How in the world are we ever going to get that stone out of the front of that tomb so we can get in there and take care of the body of Jesus? Obviously, it was too large for three women to move, right? So let's talk about the seal. Burial tombs in this time were not normally sealed because the stone was large enough to keep away grave robbers. They just kind of put the stone there. It was big enough. It kept it secure. There had to be good reason for the Romans to take such action. And the reason is, in this case is clearly stated in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. So they're going to put a seal on this tomb. Alright? Matthew 27, verse 62 says, The next day, that is the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the priests gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days I will rise. Therefore, because of what Jesus said, that he was going to raise three days later, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. In other words, here you go. Here's what you need. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now the normal way of sealing a tomb, if it were going to be sealed, was that they would stretch a cord, or possibly two, in an X pattern over that tomb, and they would take clay and they would attach the ends of those uh, four strands to the tomb, and then in the middle they would put a big clump of clay. And on each of those clay spots, they would take the signet of the Roman government and they would impress it into those clay uh, places on that seal. The Roman seal verified the fact that Jesus' body was protected by nothing less than the power and authority of the Roman Empire. Anyone trying to remove the stone would have to break the seal, and with that came... The wrath of the Roman government upon those people. The consequences for breaking the seal was very serious, even resulting in death. Now let's talk about the guards. We've talked about the tomb, the stone, the seal. Let's talk about the guards. The guards to me are the most hilarious part, if you want to use that word. The Jews uh, were not going to leave anything to chance. They were going to keep Jesus' body in the grave until the fourth day, no matter what they had to do. So they asked for Roman guards to be posted day and night around the tomb. Listen, you've got this big old whopping stone there that nobody can move, and it's been sealed by the Roman government, which nobody in their right mind is going to break that seal, right? Because they know what's going to happen if, they, if they're caught. But then they take guards and they surround the tomb day and night. They would have been well trained. They knew the consequences of falling asleep and allowing a prisoner to escape, especially a dead prisoner. That would never look good if your prisoner was dead and he got away. They would have been executed. The prisoner gets away, no questions asked, they cut your head off. So there was no danger of these soldiers working together with Jesus' disciples. 
The Roman seal attached to the stone of the tomb was far more sacred to them than Jesus was. You hear what I said? That seal was more sacred to them than Jesus was. So, and by the way, you remember what these soldiers were doing when Jesus was being mocked and crucified? What were they doing? Gambling for his clothing? Cold-blooded enough to gamble over a dying man's clothes are not the kind of people you want to mess around with. Those were the people guarding the tomb. From a human standpoint, everything that could be thought of was set in place to make sure the body of Jesus did not get out of that tomb before Monday morning. Ironically, listen, ironically, in going to so much trouble to keep Jesus from getting out of the tomb, His enemies, without realizing it, provided additional support to the fact that a miracle was going to take place of the resurrection. There was no other possible explanation of what was going to happen. Back to John chapter 20. The stone was rolled away. Verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Only Matthew in his gospel tells us how the stone was rolled away. Matthew is the only gospel that tells us how that stone got rolled away. In chapter 28, verses 1 through 6, here's what we see. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. So the stone was not rolled away by any man or group of men, but it was rolled away by who? An angel. And by the way, it was not rolled away so Jesus could get out, but so the disciples could get in. The guards are missing. John doesn't give us these details, but the guards are missing. So we go to Matthew's Gospel, where the angel first appeared. And just like you and I would have, the guards are what? They're scared to death. These are Roman guards, and they're scared to death. And they quickly left the air of the tomb. Most likely because they were scared to death. You ever heard... that? Someone say, I'd like to have been a fly on the wall. You ever heard that? I'd like to have been a gnat on the shoulder and heard the conversation as they were running away. Did you see that? Did you see that guy? It was like lightning, man. He was what? It was, did, did you see that? And they're running away, fearful, scared to death. Roman soldiers, the, the green berets, of the Roman army, the navy seals of the Roman army. Now, the soldiers, they run away. What would be their options? Could they hide? Let me ask you this. Where in the world in that day and time are the Roman soldiers going to hide? Maybe they go to Pilate and they ask for mercy for letting Jesus get away. Do you think that's a good idea? No, Pilate's going to say, cut their heads off. Matthew 28, 11-15 tells us the soldiers went to the chief priests and told them what had happened. 
The chief priests give them money. Now listen to this. And told them to tell the people that Jesus' disciples came while they were asleep and took Jesus. If the governor hears about this, don't worry. We got your back. We'll cover for you. Don't worry. And the soldiers take the money, as the old song says, and run. Now these are not very smart soldiers. If they were asleep, how did they know who stole the body or even what happened to it? You see the story and how confusing it got? Look at John chapter 20 verse 2. The body of Jesus is gone. This is the most significant thing that's missing from the tomb. Verse 2 says, So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one to whom Jesus loved, and said to him, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. I think the Gospel of Luke tells it best. The angel said to the women, Why do you seek for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. What did they say? You're looking for who? The living among the dead. He's not here. He's risen. I think it's important to think about the stone being moved. It's important to think about the guards being gone. And it's really important to think about the body of Jesus being gone. However... We must not overlook the fact that there's one thing that was not missing from the tomb. It was almost empty. Look at verses 3 and 8. So Peter went out with his, uh, excuse me, the other disciples, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. Here's what amazes me about this passage of Scripture. I find it interesting that the fact that the body of Jesus was missing did not produce immediate faith in the disciples. Would that have done it for you? You get there, He's gone. It's kind of like... Nor was it the predictions Jesus made that He would rise again. That didn't cause them to believe. It wasn't the Old Testament prophecies. They had the entire Old Testament. Prophet after prophet said a Messiah would come, He would die, and three days later He would rise from the dead. That didn't produce faith in Him. It wasn't even the report of the angels. It wasn't even the eyewitness account of the women themselves that the body of Jesus was gone. None of these things produce faith in the disciples. Let's look again at the words of John 20 a little closer. In verse 2, Peter and John are informed by Mary that Jesus' body is missing. Verses 3 and 4, the two disciples run to the tomb with John outrunning Peter. He gets to the tomb first. Verse 5, he looks at the grave clothes, but being a bit hesitant... What does he do? He doesn't go in. 
Verse 6 and 7, Peter arrives soon after and consistent with his bold, impatient personality. What does he do? He just bolts into the tomb. He immediately enters the tomb. He too sees the gray cloaks. Notice that. And finally in verse 8, John also enters the tomb and notice what we read. John sees the grave clothes and he what? Believes. What caused John to believe? He saw the grave clothes. Notice carefully here in verses 5, 6, and 8 that the word saw appears three times. Each time the word saw, it's hard for us to pick up in our English translations, and don't, I'm not uh, saying something here that, you know, uh, demeaning our English translations. We have the Word of God. If you have a copy of God's Word in English, you have the Bible. But each time this word saw appears here, it's a different word in the original Greek language. All you and I see is saw. In verse 5, the most common word for seeing is used, which means nothing more than to notice. John notices the grave clothes. He sees, he notices them. Then in verse 6, the word saw there means to theorize or to reason. Peter not only notices the grave clothes, but he begins to reason as to why they appear the way they do. Verse 8, saw here means to see with understanding. John realizes that there's only one possible explanation for what has happened. And that is the fact that Jesus has risen. And what is the result? He believes. What was it about those grave clothes that caused John to believe? Wouldn't that be a good question to answer? What what did Peter and John see that caused them to believe? Now, Quickly here, Jewish burials involved wrapping a dead body with linen cloths and within the folds or the tucks of that linen, they would stuff spices in there for what? To keep the smell down on the, on the dead corpse. Now the head was wrapped separately. Don't misunderstand, they didn't remove the head and wrap it separately. They, they wrapped the body and then the head. Peter and John saw, verse 7, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by themselves. But Jesus' body was what? Gone. So what's the point? Here's the point I want to make. Grave robbers would not have taken the time to remove the grave clothes in the tomb if they were going to steal the body of Jesus. But what would they have done? They would have grabbed the body and... Run, right? Or, if they had removed them, they would have left them scattered all over the tomb, right? Let's get them off, let's get out of here. But what does John see? Completely laying, perfectly laying, the head and the face cloth was folded up by itself, separated from the other body. John sees these details and he says something very important has happened here. Now, to help us better understand what John sees here is you've got to compare this with the resurrection of Lazarus. If you go to the book of Luke, what do we see there? Luke, 
Lazarus has died and Jesus comes and speaks and Lazarus comes out of the tomb, right? When Lazarus was raised, he was raised in a body which was still subject to disease and decay. It wasn't the glorified body in which Jesus was raised in. Lazarus came from the tomb wearing his grave clothes and with that head cloth like Jesus would have had. And Lazarus couldn't get out of those grave clothes. So what does Jesus tell them to do to him? Unwrap him. Unbind him and let him loose. The point I'm wanting to make that Jesus' resurrected body, no longer subject to death, apparently passed through those grave clothes. The cloth that was around Jesus' head had been neatly rolled up and set to one side by the one who no longer needed it. This would have been a detail that Peter and John would have made up, would not have made up. You don't make up a detail like that. The only reasonable explanation for John was that the crucified Jesus, the buried Jesus, had been raised from the dead, and those grave clothes caused John to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Okay. Jesus rose from the dead. What is the big deal? What difference does it really make? Look at your handout. You see the implications of the empty tomb. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Before I go into that, there's something I want to walk through with you. You notice on your handout, you have bad news, worse news, good news, best news. Now here's the bad news. The bad news is that every one of us sitting in this room today, everyone who has ever been born or will be born, is a sinner. And I know there's some of you sitting here going, I don't like being called a sinner. Don't get mad at me, take that up with God. Everybody who has ever been born is a sinner. And the bad news is that your sin separates you from a holy God. God says, I am holy, you must be holy. God says, just as I am perfect, in Matthew chapter 5, 48, just as I am perfect, you are to be perfect. Do we have any perfect people in the house today? No. That's the bad news. All are born sinners and you are separated from a holy God because of your sin. That's bad news. But notice the worst news. The worst news is that God, because He is holy, must judge sin and God's wrath abides upon every one of us. Bad news, you're a sinner separated from God. The worst news is that God's judgment is upon you. If you die in your sin, God (coughs) destines you to a place that the Bible refers to as hell and you are forever eternally separated from God, never given another opportunity to trust in Christ. That's bad news. That's the worst news. The worst news is you get God's judgment. The good news is is that God is merciful and gracious and He sends His Son Jesus, God in human flesh, to live a perfect life in your place. Remember, God said you must be perfect, but you can't. Guess what Jesus does? He comes and lives perfectly for you. The other part of the good news is that Because your sin condemns you and the penalty for sin is death, Jesus dies on the cross in your place to pay your penalty. I don't know about you, but that's good news, right? He lives for you, He dies for you, and then He rises from the dead for you. 
That's the good news. But you know what the best news is? Is if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, eternal life and forgiveness of sin is free. Free. How many of y'all like free stuff? I know. When you go places, you got anything for free? I'm going to buy something, but you got anything for free? Bad news. Sin separates us from God. The worst news is that God's judgment is upon us. The good news is that Jesus come to live for us and to die for us. That we can be forgiven. The best news is that that gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sin is absolutely free. You don't have to pay a thing for it. The gospel calls every sinner to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus' work for salvation. There's a call to trust in His life, His death, and His resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. What's the big deal about the resurrection? Well, look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4. through 4. And you know how I am about words. Words are extremely important, especially the words in the Bible. All the words are important. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. What's the next word? Come on, say it with me. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you in heaven. What's the big deal about the resurrection? If there's no resurrection, you have no hope of forgiveness of your sin, no hope of eternal life, and no living hope. If Jesus stays in the grave dead, so do you. You have no hope of salvation. You have no hope of a living hope. In His death on the cross, Jesus died for us in our place for our sins. That is the gospel truth. But if God had left Jesus in the grave, our salvation would not be complete. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, He would not have conquered sin and death. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sin. If Jesus is dead in the grave, you and I might as well pack it up and go to the house and hide in a dark corner somewhere and hope for the best. That's how important the resurrection is. Jesus died. He lived. He died. But if He does not rise from the dead, you are still dead in your sins and you have no hope. The importance of the resurrection. The resurrection is crucial because here's what it means. When God raised Jesus from the dead, that was God declaring, this is the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. My son Jesus is the only thing that I accept for the forgiveness of sin. The resurrection is God saying, my son's life and death satisfies my wrath against your sin. And you may wonder, if the evidence is so convincing... For Jesus' resurrection. Why don't more people believe it? Why don't more people believe that? The answer is, people refuse to believe in Jesus' resurrection because it has a personal implication that they do not want to face. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, He is the rightful Lord of all. And you must turn from your sin, trust in Him, and live under His Lordship. 
And I know some of you struggle with that. I don't want nobody telling me what to do. I want to be my own man. Can I tell you something? Since November the 12th, 1987, when I professed faith in Christ, Jesus has been my Lord. And I've never had a problem with that. I've never had a problem with God's Word and Jesus being Lord dictating my life. Because you want to know something? The best life lived is a life lived under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There, there is no other way. There is no other best, good, gooder, whatever you want to use way to live than under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You want to know how important the resurrection is? Jesus doesn't rise from the dead. You and I are hopeless. Eternally lost without God. Let's pray.